We've been talking through uh, what is called Advent, and so we talked about hope and joy and peace, and today we're talking about, about love. And so when I, when I come to these sermons on Christmas, oftentimes what I, what I find is that uh, it's, it's a story that's been told so many times that people know it. And so as a pastor, and I know other pastors feel like this sometimes, that it's hard to retell the story in a new way. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to tell an old story uh, in an old way that perhaps hit, hits you in a, uh, a new way. When I read through uh, the Christmas story, especially this aspect in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, I'm not going to be preaching out of this passage per se, but I just kind of want to get the story uh, started for us. It says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm going to stop right there. When we talk about this, this Christmas story and we, we think about the nativity scenes and, uh, and then uh, the, just the, the general Christmas story, the, the angels and uh, the shepherds and uh, these uh, three kings that come from afar and all of this stuff, I think what gets lost in the middle of that is an understanding of really what is at the core of why Jesus came. What is at the core of why Jesus came? There's, a, there's more than a hint of it here. It says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, his name means, has meaning in the idea that he's going to save his people from their sins. So he's, he's coming, he has come, so that he can save people from their sins. In fact, in the book of uh, John, John uh, chapter 3, verse 16, which many of us should be very familiar with, it gives just a, a short synopsis of basically what, what God was doing and is doing in that. And at the core of what God is doing and was doing through Jesus is love, is love. When you read the verse, it goes like this. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's, it's such a simple verse. Uh, you oftentimes see it at uh, uh, football games hanging off the side of, of something. You'll see it uh, on um, the, uh, like a van that's beat up and has a thousand bumper stickers on it. And they've written it in like lipstick on the side, John 3, 16. And it's such a great testament to who Christians are and what we do. But, I mean, John 3, it's on, it's on billboards on the side of the, uh, the road. It's all over the place. And so what happens is it's overuse in a sense, if you could overuse this scripture, which I don't think you can. But perhaps it's overuse. Gets, it gets so overused that we miss the point. 
of what God is doing and what God has done. We miss the point of the real core issue behind what God has done through the incarnation. The incarnation is the coming of Christ. It is God made flesh, incarnate. We've talked about this before, carne asada. That's about meat and whatever. I'm, I'm dead serious. Carne means flesh. Incarnation. God becomes flesh. He comes in the flesh. The Son of God comes in the flesh, and he comes as a baby. What's so striking about this is that when you look at Old Testament scripture and you look at all of the instances of God appearing to people, one of the things that you see over and over again is people are afraid. They're, they're deathly afraid. Isaiah says, I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like to be in the presence of God, to be with him is immediately to be brought to this understanding that I am unclean and I do not have what it takes it happens over and over again where people are afraid, they're worried, they're all of a sudden in the presence of God. But then in the Jesus story, in the incarnation, what you see is not this ferocious God who's thundering with lightning and smoke or a pillar of fire or this incredible vision of him on the throne and all of these things flying around singing holy, holy, holy. No, it is a helpless baby that is in a manger. And you have to ask the question, like why? Why does God do this? Why does God do this? At the core of the Christmas story is the love of God. But we get the love of God mixed up so many times. We, be, we believe that God is love, but then we can go a step further and a step too far, and that is to say that love is God somehow. We can get this all mixed up. We say, if, I, if I'm just loving, if I just do more good than bad, if I'm loving to people, if I'm, if I'm kind, if I'm generous, those types of things, and that typically might only happen during Christmas. The rest of the time, it's me time. But we say that love is God. And somehow we make love into a God rather than understanding that God is love and what he does is loving. In fact, everything is loving that he does. Even his judgment, even his wrath is done in love. And so what we have to ask is we have to, we have to ask this. We have to ask what is this story ultimately about? And I think John just gives us such an incredible synopsis of what this looks like. Just to put it in very simple terms as far as what is Christmas about. So he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So a few questions we have to ask, and it would be good for you to have this on the tip of your mind during this season, is who is the world? Why does God love the world? What is the proof that he loves us? And how do I respond to this love? I think we'll see that in this scripture here. If you look at the first two words there, for God. Now, the, the, the first thing that we have to get right when we're talking about this Christmas story is, what is the, which God are we talking about? Is this this kind of like everything is God, this pantheism idea of God? Like everything is God, God's kind of out there, and somehow through Mother Earth produces this child and this and this child, Jesus, is just such a nice guy, and he's a movement leader, and, and so he, he grows up, and Mother Earth wants us to know that, uh, that he's a really nice guy, and so we should act like this really nice guy. Everything I just said, just for the last 30 seconds, is heresy. That's all, that's all, I don't believe that. 
It says, for God. What God are we talking about? We're talking about the God of the Bible. We're talking about the, the God of Israel. We're talking about Yahweh. We're talking about the Hebrew God, this God. We're talking about the creator God. Right now, we're in the book of Genesis, and we're talking, and we've been talking through the creation account. So we're, we're talking about this creation account, and we're looking at how God has put all things together, and he creates uh, man, and then he creates woman, and he judges, and all of these things, and then he brings about this incredible flood, like this God, this God who's the creator God. He's a God who judges humanity. He is over humanity. He determines what they should do and where they should go and so on. It is this God who we're, who is, we're talking about. It says, so for God, and then it says, so loved. He's so loved. See, we're, we're talking about, uh, we talk about loving our loved ones, loving our family, loving the, the people that are close to us. When you talk about the people that you love, I mean, normally what we're going to say is we're going to say, you know, I love, I love this person, and I, and I love that person, and, I, and, and they're, they're close to me, and I, and I like them, and, and whatnot. But, but this is that God so loved. He has such an incredible love. It is so deep. It is so immense. It is so wide. God's love is all-encompassing. God's love is so impactful. God's love, if you were to experience it, would change your heart. It would change you from the inside out. It would cause you to be a different person. It would make you into someone who you are not today if you've never experienced him. It would cause you to do things that you have never done before. It would cause you to walk with him in ways that you've never walked with him before. The love of God is so incredible, and it says that God so loved. It's not just that he loved. It's that he so loved. He's so loved, but then he says, God so loved the world, the world. And this is where I think we get a, a little, little fuzzy. This is where I think we get a little fuzzy. It says, God so loved the world. Who is the world? Who is the world? Well, I mean, very simply, as Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie wrote the, the song, it says, we are the world. We are the world. We are the children. We make a brighter day. We do all, all of those things. It's, it, it's amazing, this big story of love. We can make a difference. All we have to do is just try a little bit harder, and we can save people's lives. But that's actually not entirely true. I mean, we are the world, so he got that right, but the rest of that is, is not exactly right. Ultimately, what this is saying is it's saying, God so loved the world. It's all-encompassing. It's every person ever created without exception. It's every, every single person in the entire world. Now, put this in perspective. You know, when somebody passes away, we often say, you know, at someone's eulogy, we say, you know, he, uh, he would do anything for anybody. He'd give the shirt off his back to anybody if they would just ask. Or like, you know, she was such an amazing person. She loved everybody. She just, she just would do anything for anyone. And what's striking about that is this, is that we want to remember the people that we love as givers of self at any cost. Meaning this, 
that the highest compliment that we can pay to someone after they've passed, and maybe before they've passed, is when we say that they sacrificially served others at great cost to themselves. Like the measure of this person, the measure of this person is that they would give whatever they have to this person or to anybody. But we all know that someday we're going to be lying in a casket. And we all know our heart. We all know that we do not love everyone all of the time. We all know that there are specific hatreds that we have towards people. There, there are people in my life today that I still struggle to forgive. There are people in your life that you struggle to forgive. It is not true that you would give anything to anybody at any time. There are certain people in your life who you probably shouldn't give time or attention to, just out of boundaries. But here is this God who loves the world. He loves everybody. All-encompassing, every person, for all of time. Tell me, how does that happening? How does that happen, I should say? How do, why, do, why does God love the world? Why does God love the world? Is it because we are lovable? Is it because we, uh, we're just uh, lovable people? We're nice people, as I already said said uh, that we all know that there are multiple times throughout our life that we are less than lovable. In fact, most of us, to some degree or another, are hated by somebody because of something that we've done. Most of us are. Is it because we're lovable? Are we always lovable? Is every single person in this world lovable? When God looks at the world and he says, you know what, I love everyone exactly the same way. Is it because of what's in them that he loves them? Now, if you were to think about that for a second, you would have to agree with me that God is not just immoral, but he's unrighteous, he's not holy, and he's not good if he loves everyone because of what is in them. If God loves everyone the same, because of what is in them, then we have a major problem. Because our God is not good, he is not righteous, and he is not holy. Because of this, we know that there are people in our world who are specifically unlovable. We could go down the list, but it's Christmas time, and we want to keep this relatively cheery. And there's children in the room. But just think of somebody really bad, you know what I'm saying. We all know that there's people that are unlovable. They should not be loved for what is in them. And so if God loves us for what is in us, then we have a serious problem and we have a, we have a, we have a problem with who God is. And if we were to really look at ourselves and we were to say, you know, if we think of the worst person in the world, they're driven by their desires, their actions, their, you know, what, what their heart is longing for. And the truth is, is that we have some of those same longings, those same desires. We have the, some of those same impulses. Yeah, we didn't stab anybody as a result. 
But the truth is, is that the level of hatred in my heart might be just as much, if not more, than the most vile criminal. So if God is loving us because of what is in us, there's a major problem because God should not love that criminal, whoever you have in your mind, because of what is in their heart. What that also means is that God should not love me because of what is in my heart. So why does God love the world if he's good, if he's righteous, if he's holy? Why does God love us? Well, let's keep going. It says that he gave. See, God, his brand of loving is not this kind of love that we have. God's brand of loving doesn't have to do with a feeling that he gets. In fact, it can't be because of a feeling that he gets. Because the truth is, as a holy God, he cannot love us because of our actions or because of the way that we love him. God doesn't love us because of that. God's love is based on his determined resolve to express who he is to his creation. God's love is an expression of his determined love for his creation. So he expresses it in this way. It's not just that God says, yeah, I love that person. In fact, the, the scriptures use a different word for it. Then what, that we, we have one word for love. And we talk about loving steak. I, I love talking about how much I love steak. It's been a little while, but I mean like uh, any kind of steak that you can talk about. Like uh, any type of, uh, you know, like skirt steak or flank steak or brisket or any, any one of these things. Like I love that stuff. I love get, getting it on the grill. I love to get the grill like super hot. And then I take my uh, skirt steak and I put it on there and I, you know, it's got this rub on there and I just let it get charred on there. Like here's the thing is that I love steak. I don't know if you could tell, but I love steak, all right? Steak is amazing, right? But the way that I love steak and to use the word like I love steak, but then to also say that I love my wife is so crazy because it's, these are two different types of love, and God doesn't make that confusion. God isn't confused in the way that he loves. See, God's love is an expression of who he is, and his love is always expressed in how he responds. God's love is always an expression of what he does toward his object of love. It's not that, that he says, I love you. It's not that, like, I, I, I love you. No, God's, God's expression of who he is comes out in what he gives as a result. And in this sense, it is a gift. It's a gift. Now, the gift is not just that he gave his only son, which we we know that part of the verse. It's not that, that he just gave him through the crucifixion, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What we often forget about is this, is that we're also talking about his life. In fact, when you read this in John three sixteen, 
It's right after a conversation with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is coming to God and he's saying, what do I got to do to be with God? What do I got to do to have a relationship with God? And then it goes on and, and, and Jesus is explaining some things to Nicodemus that he should know, but he doesn't know, obviously, because Nicodemus isn't a Christian. And then he goes into this and he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, God's love is expressed not just in the death of Jesus, but it's expressed in the incarnation itself. It's expressed in Jesus having been sent in the first place. We forget about the idea that Jesus is a lot like royalty. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He deserves all honor, all glory, all praise. He lives in eternal bliss with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the triune God. He is a part of the Trinity, which is God. And so here is Jesus, and he's specifically sent as an expression of the love of the Godhead, that is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's sent as an expression of God, and he takes on flesh. So he gives the Son. He gives the Son, not just in the death, but in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, the death is important, but this is, this is a Christmas story. He gave his only son. See, God's love is not just an expression of how I feel about you. God's love is action-oriented. His love is always expressed in the way that he treats or in the way and the things that he does for his object of love. God is action-oriented at his core. He is action-oriented at his core. And as a result, what he does is he gives. He's a giving God. He's giving himself away. What you must ask yourself is, why would that God, why would the only God, the true, the living God, why would he give up the Son? Why would he give up the Son in this way? Because of this. Because of this. Because the the truth is, at our core, we don't really love everybody like God does. We don't love the world the way that God does or can. We don't have the ability. We, in fact, we say that we love God, and yet we don't act in that way. So it's, it's a lie. We say that we have a relationship with God, and we don't really have a relationship with God because it's not, it's not driving us toward action-oriented love. It really is only driving us to church and home again to live our lives. So how should we respond to his love? Well, first of all, the proof that he loves us is that he sent the Son. And then, second, how do I respond to his love? And perhaps better, we should ask, who can respond to his love? Who has the option of responding to the love of God? He says that he gave his only son that whoever, that whoever, God loves the world, every person ever created without distinction. He loves the world so much, so incredibly, 
that he, in his great infinite wisdom, knowledge, holiness, righteousness, justice, he extends a gift. He extends a gift to his creation. And he says, whomever chooses. Some of you theology nerds are going, what? What are you saying now? No, I just listen to the verse. That whoever, whoever, that whoever, like it's, it's open-ended. What does this mean? The most vile criminal that you can think of. The person that's done the most evil to you in your life. The, the, the people in our world that we just have absolute disdain for. Ourselves, because we have disdain for us. In the quiet moments of our life, we think about the shame and the guilt that we bear. Whomever, the gift is offered, and it's not just offered then when it was written. It's offered today. In fact, Spurgeon says, the Lord is giving away Christ today. He's that whomever desires the gift of God, whoever desires what the Christ child is bringing, whoever wants that, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, whether you walked in this morning or whether you've never been before in your life and you're listening on podcast. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how many crimes you're in the middle of right now. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life. It doesn't matter how arrogant and prideful you are thinking that somehow you have it together without God because that, my friends, might be the worst sin of all because you need Jesus and yet you don't even know that you need him. That's tough. That's tough. That's a hard way to go because you don't even know how to respond to him. But let's just say that God awakens you today. To your absolute pride and arrogance in thinking that somehow you don't need a God to save you. And somehow you don't need what he has for you. The, the offer is to whomever. It's to whoever will go to God. And not just go to God and say, God, I believe that you exist. Okay, fine, I see, I see how childbirth works, and it's amazing, and we didn't create it. I don't see how that could just create itself. Or you might look at life and you say, you know what, I mean, the creation is, is so amazing, and I, and I see these gifts that I have, and I just go, okay, that couldn't have just happened by chance. It's not just an, an acknowledgement or intellectual assent to that a God exists. He does exist, whether you decide that he exists or not. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's the, the offer is this. It is to whoever, to whoever believes in him. Now, what is belief? Belief is active trust. Belief is active trust. It is saying that I trust Jesus. It's taking a step off of your own abilities, your, your, your own way of living. It's, it's stopping the idea that I get my salvation from the things that I consume. It could be money, sex, power. It could be substance. It could be 
whatever it is. It's, it's, it's saying, I no longer get my salvation, my fulfillment, my, my stuff that ma <clears throat> makes me believe that I matter. I no longer get that, or I don't want to get that. And I see that all of that as sin. I see all of that as against God. I no longer get all of that from this world. And now I step into Jesus' camp. And I'm actively trusting him. In fact, the way that you know that you're a believer is not because you just said that at one point, but it's, it is an ongoing act of trust. That is the sign of somebody who is a believer. It doesn't mean that you backslide. It doesn't mean that, you, it doesn't, mean that that doesn't happen occasionally. It doesn't mean that there's, that there's difficulty in life. Yes, there is difficulty in life. There are struggles. There are those things. But where does your heart in the midst of, of sin, in the midst of engaging in the things that you know to be wrong and getting your value and your dignity and your worth from the things that you consume and from the ways that you are and from the sin in your life, what this means is this, is that now you have regret. And more than regret, it's repentance. It's ongoing repentance. It's belief in Jesus means that I acknowledge where I have not made Jesus Lord in my life in an ongoing basis. So a Christian is not somebody who just kind of goes on and on and who is perfect. No, a Christian is someone who is becoming more aware of their imperfections. Not aware of their perfections, per se. Although Jesus is doing the perfecting, he does it through our acknowledgement of our imperfections. As we become more aware of our imperfections and our need for Jesus, Jesus has an amazing way of allowing us to release from those sins. He has an amazing way of, of untangling those things from our life. So the definition of a, of a believer is somebody, it is whoever. It's not somebody who's more moral. It's not somebody who's just like this prodigal son who, uh, who is just really sinful and now he just needs Jesus as a crutch in his life. No, it's both the arrogant jerk who thinks he has it all together and it's also the arrogant punk who's gone out and lived licentiously and done whatever he, he's wanted. It's both of these people need Jesus. So it's no longer dependence on who I am and what I do. It's now ongoing trust. It's active trust in who Jesus is that when he went to the cross, he paid for me. He paid for my penalty. He paid for my sin. He paid for my stuff. So it's actively trusting him and obeying him. And so, and here's the offer. That whoever, how do I respond to this? That whoever puts active trust, believes in him, not just that he exists, but in trusting him that his way is best and asking him to work in my life, should not perish. Now, here's the thing. Here's the offer of Christmas. The offer of Christmas is this. It's not just that you get fuzzy feelings on Christmas Day. It's not just that we have nativity scenes around town, although less so these days because they're offensive in the Northwest here or whatever it is. It's not just that. It, it, the offer is this, that you won't die eternally. The, the offer is that you won't die eternally. We must confront the reality of, of, of what's at stake here. In fact, John says in two verses later, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here's the thing. You and I sitting here without Jesus. If we do not have Jesus today, we are sitting in a condemned state. We are living out the works of condemnation in our life on a regular basis. You see all of the pain, the suffering, all of these things. Yes, God may be using those things in your life, but those things are brought about by the condemnation that we experience on a regular basis. We are living out the hell that we have made. And God has prepared a place for those who continue in this condemnation. The offer is this, that whoever, whoever believes in him will not die, will not perish. And the last thing is this, but have eternal life. Eternal life. All of humanity is in a state of eternal death as it stands. God's offer to you this morning, God's offer to the world, God's offer to the most vile criminal or the most moral person who has never received him. God's offer to you is that you would have eternal life. And so when you think about eternal life, what, it, what do you think about? What is, what is this existence with the love of God kind of revolving around us and being in so securely in the love of God? Like eternal life is in the presence of God. It's experiencing his love firsthand it's, it's enjoying him forever. It's enjoying who he is. In fact, Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Look at this. You make known to me the path of life. See, eternal life is not just like someday, some glad morning, you know, we're going to end up over there and it's, it's going to be this pie in the sky. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to fly away and I'm going to be with Jesus and then finally it's going to be good. But between now and then, everything stinks, right? No, it's God, you have made known to me the path of life. Eternal life begins now. It begins here. It means in large part, that our lives get better, even when they're worse. Our perspective on this world changes to the point where now, even if I am persecuted, or even if I do lose everything, I have Jesus, and he is my fullness of joy. He is my pleasure forevermore. The offer to you is this, is that the thing that you've always been going after the things that you've always been looking for through money, sex, and power, through your work, through, through how you work, through your relationships, the things that you've always been looking for. It, the promise is this, is that the feeling that you've been after, the thing that you've wanted and longed for and looked for is found in Jesus. It is Jesus. You've been looking for Jesus. You don't know that you've been looking for Jesus. You think it's found in all of these other things. You're just looking and looking and looking and looking, and you don't find it because of this. He is the one who makes known to you the path of life. 
In his presence, there is fullness of joy that is not based on circumstances, that is not based on how much sex you have, that is not based on what kind of job you have or what kind of position you take or what relationships you have or how great your marriage is. It's not based in circumstances. His joy is based in him and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The love of God expressed through Jesus Christ in a manger is shown to us. It's not just eh, the birth of Jesus. We really want to get to the cross. No, the love of God is shown to us through the incarnation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for those this morning that have never received you by faith. The Lord, that they would understand that life and death is at stake. Death is impending upon them eternally. Lord Jesus, would you awaken them to the reality we do believe that the only way that we can come to believe in you is through the power of your Holy Spirit awakening us to the reality of your love. Lord, would you awaken their hearts this morning and cause them to receive the gift by faith, trusting in you as their Savior. Lord God, we ask you for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.